Okay, tonight we're going to talk about witnessing, and I'll pray and open us up, and then we'll jump in. And again, witnessing and discipleship are not mutually exclusive. We talked about that too. So there's a lot of overlap that we're going to look at tonight, and I think you'll see. So if you're wondering, should I disciple somebody who's not saved yet? If God connects you to them, and they're willing to dig into some of this, absolutely, yes. I don't think any of the disciples had it figured out when Jesus first grabbed them. Uh, we'll pray, and then we'll jump in, talk about witnessing. Lord, thank you for this class. I just thank you for the ability to do this class. I ask that you would lead and guide our time tonight. Help us see what your word has to say uniquely about discipleship and witnessing. And give us uh, courage. I know our culture doesn't push back that hard compared to other parts of the world against witnessing, but it, it is getting worse, and even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, even if you were still in the Bible Belt, sometimes it's intimidating, and so I just pray for uh, your grace and your guidance and your courage to overcome that, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so the first passage we're going to look at is Matthew 28, 16 through 20, so we're going to end talking about the discipleship and witnessing because... This is really where you turn around and, and make this count. This is where the rubber meets the road. So Matthew 28, 16 through 20. These are basically some of Jesus' last words to his guys. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Does somebody want to read that for us? Then the eleven disciples which went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Yeah, and lo is, is an imperative. It's a command in the, in the Greek, just like make disciples is. And it just means listen, pay attention, listen up. Um, so the question is, what calling does Jesus leave his disciples, and by extension, us? And remember, discipleship is not exclusive from witnessing. The reason I say by extension, us, is, think about this. We are spiritual descendants of these 11 guys. And then you add in Matthias, you add in Paul. I mean, we're descendants of them. Jesus grabs his, he doesn't use a, and there's nothing wrong with God uses these today, but Jesus doesn't grab a uh, church conference. He doesn't use a uh, evangelism conference. Billy Graham did tremendous work. God used him in so many ways. And so that's great, and God called him to do that style of preaching. So I'm not saying God never calls, of course he does. Philip was leading a massive revival in the middle of the city when God called him to witness to an Ethiopian eunuch and leave. So, But Jesus didn't start off that way. He didn't have, okay, we're going to have a huge conference, and you gather as many friends as you can. We're going to have a big, a lot of cool worship music and everything. I mean, he picks 12 guys, one of whom walks out. So the question is, what calling does Jesus leave to his disciples and really also to us here? To make disciples. To make other disciples. All right, what I've done with you, you go and do with somebody else, he's going to tell them. There's a key in here, and the Greek word isn't actually in this passage, but it's inherent in the word discipleship. It's multiplication. 
not addition. In other words, the math doesn't just work like addition, it's multiplication, right? Because if these 11 guys are turning around and they're pouring in and investing in other people, and those people are turning around and doing the same thing, what you have with the math is multiplication, not just addition. And once you hit, if, if you've done multiplication or powers, the little number that's small above the, once you get to like the seventh power, the numbers just absolutely explode and take off. And so that's it. That's what you see. Really interesting. What two aspects of discipleship does Jesus mention here? He just mentions two things. Baptizing. Baptism. What we saw this morning and teaching. Teaching, teaching what? All the things. Yeah, all the things I've commanded you, all the things I've given you, I've told you, and we have all of those. We don't have every word he ever uttered in life, but we have all that God wants us to have because they're recorded right here for us. And remember, baptism points back to the fact that you've already been saved. It doesn't save you. You get saved and then you get baptized. Um, and it says, baptizing them in the name of the what? What does it say? So he says, baptize them in the Trinity. Why would you do that? Because they're one. They're one, yes. Remember the week when we looked at salvation? We looked at Ephesians 1. We're not going to go there today, but Ephesians 1. They're all three involved in your salvation. Father chose the plan, the Son accomplishes the plan, and the Spirit applies and seals the plan of salvation. So Ephesians 1, Paul walks through Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He digs into each one, breaks them up into three sections, pretty neatly actually in Ephesians 1. It's a, one of the most amazing salvation passages. He says, here's the Father's role, here's the Son's role, here's the Spirit. And so, I think that's a huge part of why Jesus is going to say, you baptize, you baptize in the name of all three. They're one, three persons, one God, and they're all three involved in your salvation. People sometimes say, and I've, I've heard this a few times, and when I hear it, it really kind of concerns me. That I've heard people sometimes say, well, I've always been saved, if, when you're witnessing to them. No, there's a moment or a point. It's okay if you don't remember the date, that's fine. If you don't even remember exactly what you prayed, that's fine. But there is a point or a moment at which you ask Jesus to save you. So if you haven't done that at all, if you've never confessed your sin to Him, and it doesn't have to be some certain formula, whereas, did you say this phrase? Well, no, I didn't say this phrase. Well, then you're not saved. No, I don't mean that. But, but when the Holy Spirit comes to you and shows you the mess you're in, and your response to that is, yes, I want that, then whatever you utter to God in prayer or request, God, again, it doesn't, it's not a formula, but God, take my sin from me. I want you to save me. I want you to be my Savior. Sometimes little kids will say, come into my heart. That's great. That's fine. Save me from my sin. But at some point, I have to do that. If I haven't done that, then I'm not saved. So when I'm witnessing to someone... I want to be very gracious and kind and polite and not, well, you're not safe, not rude, but I do want to press into their story a little bit if their response to me is, and I get this literally probably almost 50% of the time, well, I grew up in church, or well, I've always been saved, or something along those lines, well, I've always kind of known God, you'll hear that, and maybe this is my stats are skewed because of my personal experience, they probably are, but almost half the time... I've heard something along those lines. And you have to gently press in and go, 
that doesn't save you. I'm, that's so awesome that your parents brought you to church, or that you've always heard about God, but that's not, that's not saving you. The knowledge is not enough. So uh, there's a polite way for you to do that, and we need to do that. There are two ways to witness. You either take opportunities, or you make opportunities. You can take opportunities where you take advantage of a situation that you're in to go, oh, the door's open for me to talk to this person. You can take an opportunity, or you can make an opportunity. Some people, if they go, you know, door to door, that would be making an opportunity. There's nothing wrong with doing that. I think culturally it may not work in this culture as well as it used to work, but if God calls you to do that, do that. I've done that. We did that at my first church in the, when we were working the area canvassing the, the neighborhoods around the church. Nothing wrong with that, and certainly have seen some, some fruit from that. That um, you either take opportunities or make. Now, I don't think you need to go pounding on every door in your neighborhood necessarily, unless the Holy Spirit tells you to, but you do need to pray for and look for opportunities to share who Jesus is with other people, uh, however that looks. Uh, and we'll talk about a few ideas of how to do that. Some people say the quote, well, they won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. In other words, about them. Uh, I think that's a fair point. I really agree with that in general, but I think we should be careful not to take that too far. I have a buddy who's a college professor uh, at TCU. He was at AM, now he's at TCU. And he said he has a problem. We were talking about witnessing and social justice and a few different things. And he said he really has a problem with someone sharing Jesus when they don't even know how that person's day went. And I think particularly he was referring to door-to-door, or if they've even eaten yet that day. In other words, what, what condition, what shape they're in before they just share Jesus. Uh, that's a valid concern. I agree with what he was saying. But that point only goes so far. You can't fix everyone's problems before you share Jesus with them. And sometimes what they think is a need after they find Jesus, they may realize wasn't a need at all. Maybe it was a want, or maybe it was something that was just going to be bad for them. So... I agree with that point. They won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's a valid statement, but again, I think that only goes to a certain point. I think there's a certain point at which someone, yes, I should be willing to help them, absolutely, but someone has to to find out about Jesus Christ. So at some point in the conversation or within our relationship, uh, they need to hear that. Here's an idea. I think you budget some money for this. You take a friend or a neighbor or a coworker out for lunch or coffee. Um, I think you need to pray for your conversation before you meet with them. That's crucial because spiritual warfare, we'll look at a book that goes into that uh, as an example if you want to buy a copy. Spiritual warfare is all around us all the time. And I think that's just such a crucial point going back to our week on prayer. It's absolutely crucial that I pray that God open their eyes, that God allow minimal distractions or no distractions during our conversation, that God helps them actually show up. All those things that I'm going to enter in prayer on my knees before I actually have that meeting. If you don't have time and you're super busy and you just found out you're going to meet with the person, that's fine. And you're in the car and you're about to walk into the restaurant or the coffee shop to meet them and you're throwing up a quick prayer. I mean, again, I think God honors that too. It's based on your need. uh, and You need to pray at some point before that. At some point in the conversation, I think you share your five-minute testimony. If they want to know more and they want your 30-minute version, that's fine. But I wouldn't volunteer your 30-minute version and cram that down their throat. 
Just give them your three to five minute version of your testimony about how you came to Christ and what he's done in your life. I would focus more on after salvation than before because a lot of times people, when they share their testimony, they just talk about all the bad stuff they did. Man, we were, we were hell raisers and we did this and that, and, but now we're Christians, we don't have any fun. You know, so no, that's bad rhetoric and it's just not true. Christians have way more fun than lost people because we understand the fellowship that we have in Christ. And there's more joy. There's true fellowship. I mean, they don't, before I knew Christ, we didn't, we didn't fully get that. I would spend more time on what Jesus has done in your life. And here's the deal. I think this takes the pressure off of you to a great extent. I would just say, listen, if you ever want to talk more about this, or you have any questions about it, or you need to talk about anything, here's my contact info. Enjoy lunch. And then the ball's in their court. So you might say it toward the end of lunch or somewhere in the middle. I wouldn't sit down and say, all right, looking forward to lunch today. Now, let me tell you about, you know, let the conversation ease into it, maybe right before you leave. Tell them something like that. Hand them your contact info or if they already have your, your number. Uh, and then the ball's in their court. You haven't crammed it down their throat. All you've said is, I think you should know that Jesus, who I know, let, let me tell you what he's done in my life. Let me tell you how he's changed my life. That, that they need to know that. So I think that's super helpful. And don't worry about having all the answers. You won't. I don't either. I really don't. Salvation is not a trust issue. Uh, salvation is a trust issue and not just an information issue. Yes, there's information they need to know, but it's not just information. It's also about trust. I would focus on four things. Witnessing to adults. God loves you, number one. I would start here. You say, well, why don't you start with sin? I think it's fine if you do, and I think it depends on who you're talking about. I like to start here and then move to sin. But I think that's a style issue. I don't think that has to be a theological issue. At some point, they're going to have to know both. God loves them, and their sin separated them from God. So if you have a theological objection to sharing that first, and you want to do it in a different order, God needs you to do that, do that. But my preference would be my recommendation, I would start with that. Look at John 3.16. The reason I would start here, I think a lot of times kids, I've never seen kids struggle as much with this one. They inherently just know their answer to this question, if you ask them, it would be yes. They're, they more easily accept it. I think it's when we get older uh, that we sometimes wonder if there is a God or, or does he love me. Well, he probably doesn't. I've done some pretty horrible things. No, he doesn't love your sin. That's right. But he, but he does love you. And so I think kids don't struggle with that as much. Uh, so with adults, that's why part of the reason I would start there. Look at John 3.16, and then we'll go First John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. I, I couldn't say it any simpler than that. That's why it's one of the main Bible verses, memory verses that we start with in Awana. Look at 1 John 3.16. So these two should be easy for you to remember to use with someone because you've got John 3.16, and then John also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. So toward the end of the Bible, you've got 1 John 3.16. So I'll grab this one. It says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. In other words, the best definition of love I could ever think of. That's how we know his love for us. He laid down his life. So I think this is where you need to start. John 3.16, 1 John 3.16. You don't stop here, but you do start here.
Some preachers stop there. That's all they ever talk about. Oh, God loves you. How can we make your day better? How can we make your week just feel you know, more organized or whatever? And that's all they preach about. <laughs> They're not preaching all of God's Word. So you don't stop here, but you do start here. At least that's my recommendation, uh, particularly for adults. Now, that's the good news. Here's the bad news. Number two is everyone has sinned, and sin causes death. Look at Romans 3.23, and then we'll go Romans 6.23. So now, at this point, we're starting Romans Road. A lot of people use Romans Road, and it's great. Romans 3.23, 6 5.8, and then they go 10, 9, and 10. Everybody sins, sin causes death. What does Romans 3.23 say? For all the sin and fell short of the glory of God. Is that unclear? No. All, everybody sinned. Not certain groups, all, everybody. Okay, look at Romans 6.23. What does that say? Okay, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's it. That's also really super clear. The, the payment, what I earn from my sin, my wages, my income, although in this case it's a debt that I earn. My sin earns me this debt, these wages called death. Everybody sins and sin causes death. So I would explain sin to them. The fact that it's violating God's standards, not a statement of comparison between me and my neighbor. So some people say, well, when they think about sin, they think, well, I'm not as bad. I hear my neighbor cussing his wife all the time through the, through the window or whatever, or in the backyard in the evening. I don't yell at my wife, so I must not be as bad as him. Yeah, he shouldn't cuss at his wife, but that doesn't matter. As far as sin goes, it's not, are you better than your neighbor or your coworker? You have to be holier than God. Are you better than God? Well, no, no one's holy. Okay, that's the measure. That's the standard. It has nothing to do with my neighbor. I make sure that they understand that you've sinned also, so that you're not just telling them, man, you're this dirty, rotten sinner, and you need to listen to me because you need to come to Christ. You're a really horrible person but I'm not. No, they need to know you, okay, listen, I struggle with stuff too, but let me show you and explain to you who's paid for that sin and then who's given me direction through the Holy Spirit and the power to say no to that sin. It's totally different. But hey, I sin just like you do. I think they need to understand that. We're equal there. So you're not any better than they are. You have the same problem they have. Uh, And then it says death, right? Sin causes death. Death, I think people need to understand this too because some people don't. Death is not a ceasing to exist. It's a separation. Death is not a ceasing to exist. It's a separation. Let me show you what I mean. Look at Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, Of every tree of the garden... You may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So what happens with Adam? Well, and Andy, but what happens with Adam and Eve? They ate the fruit. They ate the fruit. Do they cease to exist that day? No, they disappear. No, no, no. But what is it? There's a separation. They're separated from God. What happens when God goes looking for them? Because they went on evening strolls together. Think about how amazing that would be. God walked with them and talked with them. And then he comes back down. What are they doing? 
hiding. They're hiding. It causes separation. Why are they hiding? Well, they're embarrassed. They realize they're naked. Apparently, being naked at first wasn't a big deal, or wasn't bad, or wasn't improper. So they realize they're naked, they're hiding. It's separation. At some point with number two, I would communicate, listen, we are not reflecting the character of God in our life, and he wants to fix that. So number one, God loves you. Number two, everybody's sinned. And you can even say, listen, I've sinned. I'm not any better than you. Because sometimes people think, oh, well, you're telling me, talking to me about sins. You're a Christian. You think you're better than me. No, 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 no. And sometimes, and this is on us, sometimes some Christians actually do think that they are <laughs> because they're a Christian. And I think, uh-uh, you've got the wrong attitude there. We're all equally sinners. It's just that I've asked Christ to save me. You either have a payment for that or you don't. Number three, I think they need to know, third thing, Jesus died for that sin. And if it's helpful, I would get specific. Paul arrested and had Christians killed. And God forgave that. So there's nothing. Paul even uses himself as an example to say, basically, to paraphrase Paul, if God could save me, he'd save any of you. Because look at this stuff that I did. He actually carried that with him his entire life what he did to the church before he came to Christ. I'm not saying carried it like carried the sin. No, the sin was totally paid for. But I mean, he was reminded of that constantly. He brings it up in his writing. He says, I don't deserve what I got. I don't deserve this salvation, but I still got it. So Jesus died for that sin. I think you'd be specific if there's something specific bothering them. Look at Romans 5.8. It's the next part of the Romans road. Somebody want to read that? Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. You have to explain that Jesus' blood pays for their sin the moment they ask him to do that. And I think that they need to know not just the moment they did that, but all their sin. It's not that his blood kind of works, but you know, if there's one thing that's worse than another or you accidentally mess up and you do it twice before you kind of recover back again for a little while or have some consistency, you know, his blood doesn't cover it. It's powerful, but only to a certain level. No, it's all powerful. It covers everything. I think, I think they really need to know that because a lot of people struggle with that. They'll think, man, well, I went back a couple times to this old pattern, uh, or even before they come to Christ. I'm entrenched in this continual thing. And you go, no, 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 all. All sin is covered and paid for by the blood that was shed at the cross. And it's this timeless, it has to be timeless because it applies to the Old Testament believers and to us under the New Testament. Hebrews explains that in great detail. We won't go there. But Hebrews basically says the blood of Christ, and Romans mentions it, pays for, it's literally, he uses the word for mercy seat that they used. I know it was Hebrew, but when they translated Hebrew to Greek, they used the same Greek word, hilasterion the same mercy seat, the thing that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant where they sprinkled the blood on the Day of Atonement. Paul mentions that word, and Paul says he's the propitiation for our sins, the mercy seat for our sins. And so that God could be just when because he passed over the sins that were previously committed under the Old Covenant. Because he makes the point, he says, the blood of animals could never permanently take away sin. They were symbolic and pointing to the blood that Jesus would shed, and the blood Jesus shed applies backward in time and covers all the sin of everyone who follows what God tells them by faith. 
they didn't know all about what, who the Messiah would be and how he would die yet, but they just, God revealed, and as he revealed to them, their response was, yep, yes sir, believe it. Blood applies, and listen, it pays for all of your sin. Not just part of it. I think they need to know that. Number four. Some people stop at number three, and I think rhetorically, number four is not just rhetoric. I think it's, it's a biblical point that they really, really need to understand. Number four. You need what Jesus did. Not just intellectual knowledge to know that Jesus did it, but his death, his payment, you need that. You see why number four is important? So they don't just understand, okay, Jesus was this historical figure who lived, died on a cross for sin in general. This is the Holy Spirit's job. He particularizes it to them, to their situation. What Jesus did, you need it. We all need what Jesus did. It has to apply to my account personally. If it doesn't, there's no salvation. Another way of saying this would be they have to respond in some way. Look at Romans 10, 8 through 11. So here's the last part of the Romans road that people typically use, which again I think is good. If you want to memorize that, it's Romans 3.23, then you add three chapters, 6.23, and then you go 5.8, and then you double the 5, you go 10, uh, 9, and 10. That's kind of the way I remember it, but however you want to memorize that, I think it's great to use. Again, I would just start with John 3 first. God loves you. Romans 10, 8 through 11. Somebody want to read that? But Paul does it say, The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that He has that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And I think that's a great verse to read them. Look at John 1.12. So hang on left. John chapter 1, verse 12. It says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So, listen, you can do this too. You have this. But you have to receive them. You have to ask them for it. Now, as you share these four things, I keep this in mind. You don't have to share the next things I'm going to say with them unless they're just specifically asking about it. But I think you keep it in the back of your mind as you share these four things so that you know them and they're providing the foundation for what you're sharing and why you're sharing it. Look at 2 Corinthians 7, 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 10. Who wants that one? By the way, just a practical note. When I'm meeting with them, I'll have them read. They said, hey, i got a question about Ephesians 4 and the spiritual gifts week. Okay, great. Um, I want you to read that one. Don't just do all the reading. Have them read too. Because then, I, I can't explain it, but something different happens. They're, they're getting it on a different level. They're not just listening. They're actually reading it themselves. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. The sorrow of the world produces death. Okay, so there's two types of sorrow. The other kind is death, but the godly kind produces, what does it say? Repentance. So I think you have in the back of your mind, you might not share this with them in detail, although if it goes there, you can. They have to repent. And what does repent mean? It means to change my mind. Literally, the Greek word, it's a combination of two Greek words, metanoia, to change my mind. I have to repent and turn away from my sin not just feel badly or remorse, 
about the consequence of my sin. It's repentance, not just remorse. And remember, we spent a whole week looking at some of those things. So I'm just bringing this back to your mind again. Remember that week we spent on repentance versus remorse? It's repentance. Not remorse. Let me give you an illustration of this. So a pastor friend of mine had a guy come forward one Sunday after the service and say, well, I, I want to talk to you. I want to be saved. They got to talking. And he said, and he asked him a question, and, and you might ask this. This is not uh, a horrible question to ask. Why do you want to ask Jesus to save you? What's God showing you? What's God revealing to you? And I think that will be very telling as to the reason. If it's remorse or repentance, I think that will come out in that answer. This guy said, well, I just really want to fix my marriage. You want to come to Jesus because you want to fix your problems of your marriage of what you're going through. Now, if that's a side reason, and his real reason is, I've messed up and I need God to forgive me. You know, something along those lines, that points to repentance. Do you all see the difference? Not just, oh man, my marriage is in trouble. I need Jesus as this quick fix. Again, if that's fine if it's a side reason. But if that's the main reason, I don't think the Holy Spirit is convicting them yet. Or they're not really listening. Because... Uh, it's got to be repentance. Godly sorrow produces repentance. It's clear. I'm not just sorry I got caught on my situation. I'm sorry that my sin grieves God, and I've realized that. So in a situation like that, are you like, I don't think you're ready, or do you, I mean... I'm going to share with the guy, this was my pastor friend, not me, but what? I'm going to share with the guy, listen, if you're going to come to Christ, we'll work on your marriage. And Jesus wants to heal your marriage, for sure. Jesus loves and honors marriage. But it's got to be because you understand that you've, you've sinned against a perfect, holy God, and there has to be payment for that. And so is that why you're doing You know, something along those lines. I'm not just going to write them off because they gave that answer. Well, yeah. But I'm going to gently press in and go, well, now tell me more about that. Well, I've made a wreck out of my marriage my entire life through my sin, and I want God to pay for my, I feel, I mean, I've violated God's perfect, and I've done all these horrible things, and I've realized through what you're telling me that it's the only way to pay for that Jesus' blood, and I want that. I need that. Okay, then that's a different... You see what I mean? So maybe you ask, like, a, hey, tell me more about that. If you ask that question to people, tell me more about that, most people, I mean, unless they're just completely shut down, they're not going to want to meet with you for coffee anyway. They wouldn't be at the meeting. Uh, they open way up when you just ask that simple question. Tell me more about that. That might help give you a clue as to why they're wanting this. But yeah, Jesus is not a cosmic genie where you just get to rub the lamp and go, okay, fix all my problems. No. Sometimes it's the opposite. Remember, Jesus says, count the cost of following me before you do it, and it may cost you dearly, but it's worth it. And again, I think that's where discipleship comes into play and follows up if it was legit, follows up with them and helps them grow. If it wasn't, I think you quickly find that out as you're meeting with them and mentoring them. I think that's why these two things are not exclusive. Witnessing and discipleship. Look at John 16, 7, and 8. Hang a left if you're in 2 Corinthians. John 16, 7, and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Who's he talking about? The Holy Spirit. Yeah. The Holy Spirit has to do that. So here's my point. You can't bring conviction of sin into their life. You really don't have that ability. You have to let the Holy Spirit take care of that part of it. You simply share what he says. 
and he's using you, again, as his mouthpiece. So you share these four things. God loves you. Everybody sins. Sin causes death. Jesus died for that sin. And then number four, you need what Jesus did. So the Holy Spirit will convict them, and all you do is come behind that conviction and share the truth in love. There is an urgency to respond quickly between them and the Lord. Scripture does talk clearly about that. But you also need to trust God to lead them in His timing. You'll know when they're ready. And you can't create that readiness. So my recommendation would be don't push them. You let God do that. If they're ready, it will be obvious. You have to trust the Holy Spirit to work in their life. You trust Him to save you, then you have to trust Him to lead them to the right point. And I love the word in verse 8, convict, literally means to win an argument. So what does that mean? If there's an argument that gets intense or heated, that's between them and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to show them that and win the argument in their life. A friend who pastored here in Midland, and there's a church member, listen to this, who shared Jesus, prayed for a friend of hers, and had lunch with her once a week for a year. And then one day, she called the pastor. It was on a Friday or Saturday toward the end of the week. And she said, you know what? Uh, God has released me from praying for this lady. I don't feel the burden to pray for her anymore at all. The burden's gone. And so they thought maybe that this lady just kept refusing. And that was why God took the burden to pray for her away. And the next day, her friend came forward at the end of the worship service and asked Jesus to save her. The very next day. You have to trust the Holy Spirit's timing in this deal. But you do need to offer them a chance to respond. You do need some sort of number four. In some sort of way that you want to share that best, that's fine. Share that however God leads you and whatever your temperament or your personality, whatever works great for you. But in some form or fashion, you're sharing number four, that they need what Jesus did. You need to offer them a chance to respond. I'm doing my granduncle's funeral so his son calls me, and I was pretty close to him. He did, uh, he trained UDTs before Navy SEALs existed. They were called the Underwater Demolition Team. He did a lot of dive work. He did contract work for the CIA, diving, explosion stuff. He was into all that. Every family reunion, I would get up early on the second day. He never stayed where we stayed. He would always stay kind of off down the road a little bit in an RV with his wife. So I would go to the RV the second morning, get up early and drink coffee with him. It was just him and me. So I valued that time. And he would just tell stories and we'd talk. Well, so he's got three kids, a boy and two girls. So his son calls me and said, hey, we want you to help do part of the funeral service because he asked he wanted you to do it. And I said, well, thanks. I'm honored. Yeah, I mean, I'll be there anyway, but yeah, I'll do it. And he said, good. Okay, we haven't confirmed a date yet. We're talking to my sister. She's good with such and such date, but we haven't heard back from my other sister. So I'm sitting there going, oh, that might not be accidental. I'm just wondering in my head. She worked with people for a while. You kind of learn how people tick. So I go, oh, that's interesting. Okay. I don't think that's just incidental. So then the next day, and she hadn't called them back yet to let them know on the date because she knows I'm was going to do it. So the next day, she calls me directly. I think this was the deal. She was waiting to talk to me before she talked to her brother. She calls me the next day, says so my cousin. And she said, hey, um, glad you're doing it, but listen, I just want to tell you something that really bothers me. 
when you shared the gospel and you gave people a chance to respond and you talked about all those things that you spent some five or so minutes talking about when you did your grandpa's funeral, I said, yeah. She said, I didn't like that. That's not what the funeral's about. It's about the person you're talking about. And so since this is my dad, I want to ask that if you don't do that because I want that day to be about my dad and not about all this other stuff. <laughs> now, what do I immediately know? I don't tell this to her because it's just going to light her fire even more. But what do I immediately know? There is some pain from her past. I don't know what happened. And she is allowed bitterness to creep in, so much so that she doesn't even want the gospel shared uh, at this deal. So that's my understanding at this point, to go, hey, you know, that's fine. I'm not mad at her. It actually makes me feel and know how to pray for her leading up to the funeral. So I shared, I think it's chapter 3, I shared Ezekiel chapter 3 with her and said, look, this is my philosophical foundation. God told Ezekiel, if, uh, if I tell you to warn them about their sin." and you don't share the message that I tell you to share, and they die. They'll die in their sin, and that's still on them, but their blood will be on your hands. So I shared that with her, and I said, I have a, uh, an obligation to at least share. I said, I don't have to be ugly or yell or raise my voice about it, but I do have to at some point give people a chance to respond. So I said, look, why don't we do this? How about I say toward the end something like this? Jesus loves Uncle Wes. Jesus loves every single one of you. And so listen, if you've never received that love, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you've never experienced that love, or you just have a question about it, come grab me. So I told her, I said, I would say something like that. She said, oh, okay, I think I can work with that. That sounds pretty good. I'm glad you think that that sounds good. Uh, what I wanted to say was, listen, your dad told his wife before he died that he wanted me to do the service. So deal with it. But I did not say that. That's not going to help her heart. She's bitter. I need to be gentle to her and share the love of Christ. And so that should inform how I treat her. I can't treat her like that. So you share those four things, but you do need to offer some sort of chance to respond. We've got tracks that you can grab. Uh, I like this one, Life's Greatest Discovery. The only thing that I'm not so crazy about is it uses King James now. Nothing wrong with King James. It's just that we don't talk like that anymore. So if I'm sharing with a 25-year-old and I'm reading and saying, you know, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, Romans 10.9, we don't talk like that anymore. We don't talk to God like that. English is a changing language. so But it's not a big deal. That's my only, I guess, small dock on it. The other one would be, it uses Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, if any man hear my voice. That's not an evangelistic passage at all but they use it evangelistically, but that's not a big deal. He's talking to his church there, actually, which makes it more outlandish. He's knocking on the door to his own church, saying, hey, anybody listen? You know, open the door and let me in. A book that I think is helpful is called Praying Effectively for the Lost, Lee Thomas. You can grab a copy of this off Amazon or off his own website pretty cheaply, I think. Praying Effectively for the Lost, Lee Thomas. It's a guy out of Westlake, Louisiana. The reason I like it so much is it deals with the spiritual warfare perspective. Hey, this is what's going on spiritually, biblically, with this person who's lost, and you need to know this when you're coming into the... You're stepping into a battle, a spiritual battle. So I think he focuses, has a good focus on that, just to help give you some good info. Witnessing to kids, witnessing to children. Number one, I want them to be able to answer a few questions pretty clearly. Number one, what is sin? 
Can you tell me what sin is? And I want them to be able to answer that pretty basically. If they don't understand, that's okay. I'm not going to push them. They're just not ready. What is sin? If they say something as simple as, when I lie to my mother, or when I hit my sister, yes. And that might be the example they use. That's fine. They understand uh, it's violating God's character. It's violating God's standard. So if they say, hey, when I hit my sister, yeah, it's doing anything that is against what God wants. Second question I'm going to ask them is, have you sinned? Once they've identified what sin is for me. Now, why didn't I start with John 3? Because most kids don't struggle with that. Their answer to this first question, if you said, hey, does God love you, would pretty much always be yes. They don't struggle with that as much. So, again, it's okay to start there. But what is sin? Number two, have you sinned? If they say no here, again, I wouldn't push. That just means they're not ready yet. It's okay. Most kids won't say no. Most kids understand. Oh, one kid said a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yes, you appreciate the honesty. Number three, what did Jesus do so that he can forgive you? They need to understand a basic answer to that question. They don't need to understand the kenosis theory of the incarnation from Philippians 2. And you don't either when you're sharing this yet. But they do need to have a basic grasp on what Jesus did that allows them to forgive them. Um, They may say something like, shed his blood, died on the cross, something like that. Yep, perfect. Number four, I end at the same place I would end here. Number four, have you asked him to do that? What is sin? Well, sin's when I hit my sister, I lied to my mom. Exactly, it's violating God's standard. Have you ever sinned? Oh yeah, absolutely, I, I you know, hit my sister two hours ago. What did Jesus do so that he can forgive you of that sin? Oh, well, I've heard this story. Well, I know he died on the cross. So if they give a basic explanation, and then I would say, okay, great. Have you asked him to do that? What are you doing with number four? You're translating it from just head knowledge to personal. Have you made this personal in your life? Now, God wants your kid to be saved, particularly if this is your kid, grandkid, whatever. He wants them to be saved even more than you do. As much as you do, maybe multiply that by 100. And that's how God feels about it. So don't push them hard here. I would let him guide them. I think you need to make sure, particularly with kids, that they don't want to just be saved so that they can be part of the family. Uh, If the rest of the family or much of it's saved already, they just may feel like, well, I want to be included, so I want to be saved. If you put them off and they come back to you the next day, or two days later, and keep bugging you about it, then they're ready. So I would even say it's okay to put them off for a day or two. Yes, there's an urgency, but I want to make sure Bobby's not just praying because his sister prayed, and we were so excited about, and you bought her a Bible, and so he wants to go, oh man, I kind of want that stuff too. I want to make sure that that's not why Bobby's praying. If they do ask Jesus to save them, just an idea, you can have them journal it, keep it. I think that would be helpful so that when the enemy brings doubt to them later, he says, yeah, you really, you weren't saved. You didn't understand. You were too young. Especially if they're saved at a young age, then they'll have something to remind them that they did pray and ask God to save them. On this day, I trusted Christ and I did understand and my mom explained it to me and I got it. Common questions and objections. Don't argue, just answer questions. Number one, the Bible is full of errors. That's a super common one. 
my response to that is, okay, show me one. I would ask for an example. Most people can't produce one. They've just heard that shared. You know what I mean? There are some tough passages. For example, if you look at some of the numberings in Chronicles versus some of the other historical books, there are some tough passages, but they generally don't have anything to do with salvation. And most of the time they can't give you one really anyway. And so I would just want to say here, you're pointing them to Jesus. You're not winning an apologetics argument. So apologetics can serve a role in helping to till up the soil of their mind or to use a biblical inference, soften their heart. But you can't argue someone to Jesus with just apologetics. The Holy Spirit has to do that. Remember, the definition of the word convict means to win an argument. So you aren't arguing with them. I wouldn't do that. If they're being convicted by the Holy Spirit, they'll want to know, not argue. They still may have questions. Well, what about, I've heard some of this, what about that? But you see their heart behind that, sort of asking it that way. It's totally different. They're not just wanting it jump into an argument with you. Um, if they do have a legitimate question that you don't know how to answer, that's okay. Go to one of your pastors, elders, check a good study Bible, uh, look into that passage again and study it a little more, grab a friend and go, hey, have you ever thought about this question? Have you ever studied this passage? Something like that. That's where the church, other believers can come in to be super helpful. Number two, the church is just a country club full of hypocrites. So my response to that, honestly, I would say, you know what? There are some hypocrites. Now, I've met some of them. <laughs> you know, there are hypocrites in the church, and the Bible says that the enemy will sow tares among the wheat. In other words, unbelievers in the middle of believers in the church. They're not really in the church, you understand, in the kingdom, but they're attending the gatherings. That's what I mean when I say in the church. Unbelievers among believers. Uh, if you want to look at this later, Matthew 13, 24 through 30 is the parable of the, that explains this is what the kingdom's like. And we can't separate all that. God's going to do the separating with his angels at the end of time. So it will sometimes be hard to tell the difference for a little while between the tares and the wheat. If you only have a short period of time, you're looking them side to side, you may need more time to be able to properly diagnose them. So it is, it is a tough thing. Um, I would share with them whatever answer you're comfortable with using and whatever uh, personality type they are. For example, this is funny. If the use of humor would be helpful, you might say something like, you know, yeah, I would rather spend a few years with some of them here than eternity with them there. <laughs> I mean, if they don't think that was funny and that would offend them, then don't say that, but that might be helpful. You might say something like, hey, have you ever had a bad meal that put a bad taste in your mouth? You didn't quit eating, did you? I mean, you still have to eat. So Again, just don't be rude in your response, but find something that would make sense to them or that they would think maybe even would be funny. Jesus uses humor all through the Gospels. He uses sarcasm on several occasions. He nicknames James and John sons of thunder because they're so rambunctious. He's being funny. I mean, we read that and we go, sons of the, as if we're at some holy moment. No, he's being funny. He's being a little sarcastic when he says, listen, if you're going to correct your brother uh, on something, a believer, you need to take the plank out of your own eye. If you're going to call out a speck in his eye, you're going to take the board out of your own eye. He's being funny and sarcastic, so I think that's fine. Because humor has the, it has the ability to, to lighten the atmosphere in the room and open people up. 
you'll see it with their body language and their posture. Maybe they'll laugh and they'll lean into you at the table or something. It, it tends to open people up. So there's that one. Again, I wouldn't be rude, but uh, use whatever you might think is helpful. Number three, the last one's probably one of the most common that I hear. How can God be good and powerful when there's so much evil in the world? They see so much bad stuff going on that people seem to get away with, and they go, how's that? Where's your God? How can God be both good and powerful? In other words, either he's not good, he's evil, and he likes this stuff, or he's not powerful enough to stop it, or both. How can God be good and powerful with so much evil? People struggle with that one. My response is something along these lines. Again, you let the Holy Spirit lead you. Just stick with Scripture and let Him lead you in that. I say, you know, free will, the specific philosophical term is free moral agency. Free will of humans leads to evil choices and evil behavior from humans. And that's inevitable. God didn't create us as robots who have no ability to choose between right and wrong. Don't use the fact that horrible things happen to refuse to follow the only one that can bring you through them and heal your pain from them, and one day deliver you from even having to be around them at all. Now, if they're willing to have a dialogue and not just to argue with you, I would read Genesis 3 to them, which explains the fall. I would have them, not just you, so have them read this part. I would have them read Revelation chapter 21 and 22. You have when we screwed it up, Genesis 3. You have when God ultimately fixes it, Revelation 21 and 22. Genesis 3, listen, the world is broken right now by our sin. God doesn't like that either. Revelation 21, 22, God will fix it one day. And 2 Peter 3, 3 through 9. I would have them read that too. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 9. And God is waiting to fix it so that everyone, hey, including you, everyone who might want to say yes to Jesus can respond. Because if he comes back right now, it would be too late. Peter actually specifically says that. I just paraphrase what Peter says in the third chapter. Whatever you do talk about, I would just always take it back to Jesus. In other words, don't let it stay in the argument form. I would always take it back to Jesus. You know, there is suffering. Jesus took the suffering on himself to help lead us through some of this suffering. And ultimately, he'll deliver us from this. You know, Revelation 21, 22. Hey, the church is just, yeah, you know what? Some of them may not know Jesus. They're just attending. Have you ever thought about, oh, I never thought about that. Or, hey, they're growing in Jesus just like you and I are. They still struggle with this or that. Bible is full of errors. Take it back to Jesus. Listen, this book has amazing integrity, actually. You know, there are Old Testament prophecies written hundreds of years before he came onto the scene that predict with pinpoint accuracy what his life and death was going to look like. And so... I just take it all back to Jesus. I think that's a helpful principle. And I would remember that logic will not lead them to bend their knee to Jesus Christ. It won't. The Holy Spirit has to do that. Logic has its place, but it's limited in what it can do. So to wrap up, discipleship is helping other people find Jesus and follow Jesus. And you're not discipling someone. It's time to start. I know this is a strong point, and I don't make it lightly, and I say it with grace. But if you don't make disciples as a life pattern, then you're not obeying Christ because that's what he tells us to do. And that's his chosen church growth method. So I would ask God to give you wisdom about who to share his love 
and his calling with. So specifically with that, this week, I want you to sit down, get quiet, and pray and ask God to bring to your mind a few people that you need to share your faith with. And then actively be looking for someone you can disciple, whether they already know Jesus as their Savior or not. And I would go men with men, and I would go women with women. And there's a specific reason I say that. I'm not just being legalistic. Unless a spouse is also coming as well when you're mentoring someone, then that's fine. But otherwise, if either one of you's married, that is, if either one of you's married, then I would just stick with guys with guys and girls with girls for many different reasons, unless one of them brings a spouse or something like that. I'm not going to do a meal with another woman, whether she's married or not, because I am. But if I'm at dinner or lunch or coffee with another woman, not my wife, and, you know, not my sister or something like that, but another woman who's not my wife or one of my kids, we've backtracked affairs. We have them do an exercise where they write down chronologically in reverse what happened, what led to that, what led to that, what happened, and they backtrack it. And it starts with something as innocent all the time as, oh, well, I thought I'd call my old flame, or, oh, well, this coworker, you know, we went out to lunch to talk about something for business or something like that, and, you know, was it just the two of you? Well, yeah, and then we got to talking, and then we started texting. I'm telling you, I would stick men with men, women with women, uh, if either one of you is married. But the ultimate point is, get them into the Word. So if they don't have a good Bible, good translation, good study Bible, buy them one. You can go to the Martell Bible Wall. So I'll ask somebody, if I'm discipling them, I'll go, look, do you have a good... Oh, yeah, I've got a really good one. And I'll look at it and go, okay, great. Hey, do you have a good... Man, I've got this really old one. I don't read it. The print's tiny. It doesn't have any notes. I don't... Okay, let's go meet me at Mardell. And I've actually met them. We'll grab three or four of them. And there's two things you need to look at. Translation and if they want study notes or not. Those are the two different pieces that you can mix and match. So I would sit down with them, look at a few of those. The brilliant thing about Mardell and not having to order it online is you can actually sit down and dig through the Bible and see if it's something they like or not. Questions as we wrap up? I'm always that's it too. You can say, yeah, I've been one. Yeah, I, Let me tell I, you I, what I, happened. I still, I still have grits sometimes. Yeah, and it came from the secular Greek world where uh, when they would put on plays, they a lot of times didn't have the cast to fill every role. So they would make masks, and they would just switch the masks out. So you had the same person wearing different people in different scenes. And that's the hubacrites. That's where it came from, like a mask wearer. You're this guy in this scene, but you're this other person over here. So um, That's the word they picked, the Bible authors picked, from the play, from the theater, to put. And Jesus says, when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. It's that word. Anybody else? On the kid one, um, I mean, like, I know that my oldest two can answer every one of those questions, but they haven't expressed, I mean, they haven't explicitly expressed, I feel like I, I mean, would you just leave it at that? And even the the last, I have a hard time, you know, have you asked that? During your next conversation with them about this topic, I would just say, listen, whenever you're ready, you feel God tugging at you. And we've definitely done that. I mean, we've said, 
That's good. Especially lately, had a lot of questions, and even asked, "Oh, I had tons of questions." How long your tummy hurts? I was four years old in the back seat. Well, Mom, who's Satan? What's the whole Satan deal about? I'm not kidding. Yeah, I had tons of questions. So, but I, questions I are good. Yeah, but I've definitely said you'll know. You'll know when, you know, when it's time. What we've talked about, the Holy Spirit will draw you. He'll let you know. And the answer to your question, part of it is, God wants him to be saved mm-hmm. even more than you do, and so. But I don't want to put him off to the point. I mean, there have been times right. where my heart is racing, and I'm like, he's about to tell me, like, I'm ready, I want to. And then he'll be like, can I make some popcorn or something like that? <laughs> so, yeah, that's fine. You know, I don't want to push. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. We had a little boy in our church uh, one time several years back, and the family was sitting, like, on third or fourth pew. And he had been, you know, asking one questions and all this kind of stuff, and I guess God just tugged at him and he was kind of sitting in the middle and he couldn't get around the other adults. So he ducked on that pew and shot out. And I mean, our preacher's standing there going, you're going to That's and he said, That's how you come to Jesus, right there. He oh, said nothing no. was going to stop him. He no. crawled under like three pews. <laughs> that's good. Okay. Right. I feel like I thought that was that's pretty good. Kid was ready. I was at my aunt's, but I mean, I feel like I was, the, the conviction was so strong. Like one day was all I could handle. So you hear these stories of like, God was dealing with me for weeks, and I'm like, I do not know how anybody does that. So, or even the, oh yeah, I did that. One of my brothers was like, yeah, okay. I asked Jesus into my heart in my room, you know, a couple years ago. When my mom finally came out and asked, and she never, you know, did. yeah, no, and so that I mean, I was, that was not me. I was like wanting to tell everyone, and you know, I was four so and prayed with my mom. I started the prayer. You know, I started the prayer. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to start that prayer. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah, I was four. Most kids are a little bit older. And so, but, but most, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. But most people, I don't have the date written down, but I remember doing it. Yeah, but most people, it's under eighteen statistically. It's most people. Don't let stats stop you, though. You know, I've, yeah. I've, I've seen 70s and 80s year olds in retirement home come to Christ. Never got it before. I mean, so I, I yeah, I wouldn't let that limit what you think God can do. Here's the notebook that I use. Y'all can use anything you want, but if you want to use the material in here, just let me know or let Marissa know. Let her get with me or Teresa or anybody. And we can have one printed for you now that we're actually done with the notes going through. Because this class was the first time we, I went full through it and created all the notes. So we can print all 25 weeks. It would have uh, this. I would actually, this is going to sound contractual, I know. I would actually, I've learned from experience, people bailing on me on week four. I would actually have them sign this. I agree to stick with the series. I agree to multiply. And I agree to obey 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 and how I disciple others. And those basically say, I'm not going to go to the bar and have a bunch of beers for my discipleship group. And basically would be, I'm not going to put a stumbling block in front of somebody I meet with. I have them sign that and keep it just so they remember the commitment they make. I want them sticking with this. Here's the 25 weeks in the order. And then for all 25 weeks, here's the notes of what we've handed out. Okay, so basically it's the verses and the questions or whatever, and they can write it stuff. So here's what I do. I send them the Dropbox link so they can listen to it on their computer, 
or if I text it on their phone, if they have a smartphone, either one, the week before. So I sit down with them the first time. We talk about what we're going to do. I have them sign it. I go, all right, if you want to do this, oh, yeah, I want to. Okay, let's do week one next time. Here's your notebook with all this stuff. Give them a pen, too. I put a little pen in there for them. A nice, you know, not a, a big. I give them a nice pen because I want them having a nice pen to write with. Because, you know, people are like, oh, I don't know where my pen So I have a nice pen that, that fits in the groove right here that's got that little, and that slides in. And I give this to them, and then I say, all right, you've got uh, this, so go. here's the Dropbox link for the audio recording. Go through the audio, um, walk through it as best you can, at least once. Walk through it as best you can. It'll take you about an hour. If you've got to pause it a lot, it might take an hour and a half. And then we'll meet again next week for coffee or lunch or wherever we are. I like to do, you know, roses or coffee or something. And we'll talk about it. Any questions you have, something that's not clear, write it down. So then our meeting time isn't, because if you do this slowly, it's going to take an hour and a half. And if you're trying to fit it into a lunch break, it just won't fit. If you have an hour and a half and you want to walk through the whole thing with them, do it. But if you want to do it this faster way, then when you meet, you have more time to zoom in on what they particularly struggled with or had a question about. One more note. We cover things in here. The basics that Scripture is explicit on, that's pretty clear, right? Jesus died for your sin. Jesus was sinless. Those are pretty non-negotiable. But some of the things we mention in here, they're just my take or someone's take. A lot of this content was borrowed from Chris Osborne, a pastor in College Station who's now teaching preaching at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. I don't agree with Chris 100% on every little bitty point. So don't let that be a stumbling block. So I would explain to the person you're meeting with, hey, there are going to be finer points that you may go, hmm, what if that verse is... You brought some of them up with me, right? And you, you've challenged me on some. What if this verse is saying this and not just this other thing that you... Maybe it is. Don't let that be a stumbling block to them where they go, well, I'm not going to finish this series. Or then feel afraid to bring it up. Does that make sense? Say, listen, that's fine. You know, if, you, uh, if you don't think tongues are for today at all, that's okay. Let's keep meeting. So don't let that be a, be a stumbling block. Biggest thing, if you don't transfer this at all, I'm just spinning my tires with you. So start praying now about, hey, who can I mentor? Who can I disciple? Who can I be praying for? Uh, and I would start to think about that. So I'm not going to say legalistically, six months from now, you should have one or two people. I'm not going to make, because that's making rules. But I would say five years from now, ten years from now, two years from now, if this isn't a pattern at all in your life, after everything we've covered, then I would say, okay, there's an issue. We need to change some things. There's an issue there. So I would say it that way. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time. Um, we've spent a little extra time tonight on the last week, uh, and that's fine. We, this is such an important thing that you've asked all of us to do. So the cool thing about this class is, God, this is a thing that you ask, a calling that you place on every single one of us. Not just an elder or a deacon or a minister or a staff member. You place this on all of us. Like Peter says, you're a royal priesthood if you're a believer. And so we all have this calling to make disciples and to be a witness for you. And so um, help us be faithful in that. Give us the courage to do that. Give us the wisdom to know how. Give us the love to do it the right way. We pray this in Jesus' name.